Okay. Well, it's a little bit different. We're normally split half and half uh, between um, on-site at First Christian Church and online. We decided we'd go all online today because we don't know when that rain's going to turn to ice. So uh, thanks for joining me online for our next installment of Rewind That, the reason for the Book of Romans. And uh, we are looking at this book um, in a different way that you would normally read it. We're going to sections in it that's describing the purpose of the book and why Paul wrote to the Roman house churches in the first place. And um, this is where we've been and where we are. So I just want to review for a moment. When we read Romans 1 through 11, uh, we must take note of the purpose that Paul is using to write this letter. If we don't, we might misread the intention of what's in these first 11 chapters. Now, when we think about that, we also must understand that Paul has an agenda, and his agenda is uh, not only to bring about a peaceful relationship between the Jews and Gentiles that had been reunited after the Jews were allowed to come back to Rome after Emperor Claudius had ex uh, um, exiled them for a number of years. We are also noting that he has a desire to uh, have the Roman house churches participate in a collection for the poor Jerusalem saints, as well as uh, somehow muster both prayer and financial support for him to go to Spain. Uh, we know that he does not make it all the way to Spain. Uh, we know that Paul eventually does come to Rome. It will be there that he will be executed. He never makes it all the way to Spain. But what we do know is that was part of his agenda to get there. Now, we've been talking a little bit about the strong and the weak. <laughs> that section in chapters 14 and 15 that seems to set the tone for what Paul is trying to do in bringing about peace between these two groups of people. So just by way of reminder, the weak are the Jewish believers who see themselves as part of the stream of God's elective purposes, going back to the First Testament uh, that we call the Old Testament. Uh, these are individuals that keep practicing Torah and rituals and ceremonies uh, that uh, the Jews are accustomed to. The strong are considered to be mostly Gentile, possibly some Jews, but not many, that see freedom from the Torah law and they exercise that freedom with, um, with an, an eye toward kind of a condescending attitude toward the Jewish uh, believers that are still trying to keep Torah law. So the strong um, that believe in Jesus as a messianic king, that is the Jewish fulfillment uh, of the Messiah, still are looking down their noses upon the Jews. So that's where we've been. And now we come tonight to probably the toughest section in the entire New Testament. I'm not overstating that. This section in chapters 9 through 11 of Romans is misunderstood and misapplied in a variety of ways. And one reason for that is when you start reading Romans from the beginning, and you see all of the theological concepts up 
front in the book, uh, it is easy to think that what Paul is doing is trying to proof text in 9 through 11 of what has come before. If we look at the context of what he's trying to accomplish, we can see a little bit different twist, and that's what I want to show you tonight. We're not going to look at all the verses in these three chapters, but I want to highlight some themes, and I want you to see that this possibly is the reason uh, Paul is writing, to somehow get movement in these two groups that are not uh, getting along well. So to get there, we are going to first remind ourselves that Paul suggests that uh, being in conformity to Christ is the only way that they're going to experience love and peace and reconciliation. And so what he is doing is trying to push these believers to imitate uh, the love of Christ. And of course, that's dominant in chapters 12 uh, through 15, living in harmony with one another, uh, being sensitive to the other side's needs, uh, and so forth. So those are some of the things that we've already looked at in our previous weeks. And in this study, what I want to do is notice some things in 9 through 11 that I think will help us to understand what Paul is trying to accomplish here. Now, if you read these three chapters without any context, you will find these three chapters uh, uh, quite disturbing and confusing. So what we have to do is break it down and take a look at a few things that jump out immediately. So the first thing that jumps out, and if you have a Bible, turn open to Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, you're going to notice here, I'm just going to point this out, we're not going to read all the verses, is it's filled with names. So we already saw in chapter 16 that there were names that were mentioned uh, that Paul is sending greetings to or sending greetings to other people through those people that are named in chapter 16. This is a different thing. The names that are here in chapter 9 are all major individuals in the history of the nation of Israel. So if you come down to verse 6, I want you to just scan your eyes down the whole chapter, and I'm going to point it out to you. It says here um, in verse 2, um, Abraham's children. Uh, verse 10, uh, or rather verse 9, Sarah is mentioned. Uh, and I skipped over Isaac in verse 7. Verse 10, Rebecca's children. Uh, by the time you get down to verse 13, he talks about Jacob and Esau. Verse 14, Moses is named. Um, then when you uh, get later in the chapter here, you're going to notice that he quote some of the Old Testament prophets uh, in verse he quotes Hosea. Verse 27, he quotes Isaiah. Um, so all of these are major personalities in the storyline of the nation of Israel. And with that, it's important to note that what is often used to, I guess, proof text a theological concept called 
predestination and election. I don't, are you familiar with those terms that God chooses individuals for personal salvation uh, and, and he, he does not choose others? In other words, um, in chapter eight, he talks about um, those that um, are individuals that um, let me find it here. Um, verse 28. Among many brothers and sisters. And those who are you. Are you going in and out for anyone else? What's that? You're going in and out of. Uh, that's because I'm. I turn my. I turn my. Uh, my face away toward the Bible. Oh, yeah. reading. So okay. can you hear me better now? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So let's start again. So I, I'm sorry about that. This laptop has a a single direction microphone in it. Doesn't pick up things from the side. So. Um, so when I went to look at the, the Bible, that's why you couldn't hear me. So, so anyways, I was beginning to say, um, in chapter eight, a very familiar verse, it says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good, for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Then in verse 29, he says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So that is mostly applied by theologians to be kind of like individual salvation. And there's a big the theological system called Calvinism that's built on that idea that God chooses those he wants to save and he chooses those that he wants to disregard. So when people interpret that verse, and we're not going to do that tonight, but when people interpret that verse that way, and then you move into chapters 9 through 11, it is believed that the election that is being talked about in chapter 9 is about personal salvation. But when I just pointed out to you the names, they all relate to uh, the major uh, individuals that are in the storyline of the nation of Israel. And in chapter nine, there's no mention of personal salvation at all. It's just about the storyline that um, of the nation of Israel. And there's a reason for that. And it, because he's trying to do something uh, for that audience that he calls the weaker believers in Rome, which are Jewish Christians. So what this pertains to is not God's choice of them individually as individual persons. What it's talking about is the choice of the nation of Israel as God's conduit to bring about the promises of the Messiah, to bring about the fulfillment of bringing together the family of God, of which the nation of Israel had all these privileges to be on the front end of that. But now that has opened up to the Gentiles as well. 
So let me stop there and see if I kind of left you behind in my explanation. Is there anything I can clarify on that? So the first, first thing we notice in chapters 9 through 11, it begins with all these Jewish names. Second thing is the events that are mentioned here. The events that are mentioned in chapter 9, again, pertain to the nation of Israel. So when you take a look at chapter four, uh, 9, verses 4 and 5, might as well begin in verse 3. It says, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those in my own race, the people of Israel. There is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God overall, forever praised. Amen. So notice the events that are referred to here. Uh, the idea of divine glory and covenants and receiving of the law, all those things pertain to everything from Moses uh, being able to see the glory of God, the Mosaic covenant that was given on Mount Sinai, um, the instructions in the book of Exodus for the building of a tabernacle, which will later become a temple, all the promises that are given over the course of history, not only uh, to Abraham, which is specifically mentioned here, but also to David as well, and then the new covenant in uh, Jeremiah. So all of these things are events that pertain primarily to the nation of Israel. So the theme here in chapter 9 is all about Israel. And you'll see the name Israel also jumps out in this chapter. So he mentions my own race, verse 4, the people of Israel. Verse 6, descended from Israel. Verse 27, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea. Verse uh, 31, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained their goal. So, this is all about God's working in the Old Testament through a chosen people that goes all the way back to Abraham. And that's what he says in verse 6. He says, it's not as though God's word had failed, for not all who had, are descended from Israel are Israel. That's, there's a side note there, uh, the idea of faithful Israelites nor because they are descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So the theme in chapter 9 is not how you get saved. It's not how you stay saved. It's not even declaring who is saved. The emphasis is on God's covenantal faithfulness toward a group of people that he was going to start this movement toward the Messiah of which Jesus fulfills the Old Testament expectations. Does that make sense, everybody? Okay, so we look at the names that are there, all these Jewish names, 
We look at the events that are mentioned here. Thirdly, now, this will, this is where it gets confusing in these chapters. All of the Old Testament citation. So if you have a study Bible, glance your eyes down to the bottom margins. What do you see down there? All kinds of Old Testament references. There, all of these things are either direct quotations from the Old Testament or allusions to the Old Testament, because sometimes Paul will quote some of these passages, not out of, out of the Hebrew Bible, but out of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So this, I didn't know any other way of doing, doing this. Um, and this slide is a little bit confusing, but just bear with me for 30 seconds. So in Romans 9, he quotes Genesis three times in a row, then Malachi, then Exodus twice, then Isaiah, then Hosea, and then back to Isaiah for four more citations. In Romans 10, he turns to Leviticus, then twice to Deuteronomy. He jumps ahead to Isaiah, then back to Joel, then back again to Isaiah, and then to Nahum, back to Isaiah, then to the Psalms, then back to Deuteronomy, and then one more dip of the toe into Isaiah. And then in Romans 11, he quotes from 1 Samuel, the Psalms, 1 Kings twice, back to Deuteronomy, and at the same time, he quotes Isaiah and the Psalms again, and then goes back to Isaiah and then closes with a citation from Job. Okay. That's a mouthful just saying it. Think about writing this. So Paul is a Jewish educated scholar. He's a rabbinical scholar, and it shows by the, how much Old Testament scripture he knows. He intentionally goes back into the Old Testament. He quotes all of these things to make a point. But the important thing to note here is this. The important thing to note here is would the Gentiles even know what he's talking about? No. They would not have a clue as to what Paul is doing. So who is the audience then in chapters 9, 10, and half of chapter 11? It's the Jews. So with all these Old Testament citations, what is it he's trying to do? Well, besides giving us an impressive uh, sword drill through the Bible, he is setting the Jewish people up to knock them down a little bit so that they will loosen up in their pride and that they will begin to see that the Gentiles have been brought in in chapter 11, that it will be described as grafted in to this thing that God already started in the Old Testament. But these Jewish uh, individuals, um, they had a certain air, a certain arrogance about them. And he takes note of all of that. And he recognizes that they have been privileged 
more than any other nation on earth by God's direct dealing with them. So with that in mind, then he names all these people. He, he quotes from all of these Old Testament um, references. But if you really want to see why he's doing all that, take a look at chapter 10. It says, brothers and sister, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Saved? Saved from what? It's, this is not individual salvation here. Uh, it's saved from um, thinking that they stand right before God based on their ethnicity alone. May they be saved from that type of mentality. Verse two, for I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. They keep the law. They keep all the requirements of the law, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and they sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteous, uh, righteousness for everyone who believes. There it is, right there. That's what he's trying to do. You have all of these privileges, and yet you missed the point. All of these things were preparatory for the Messiah to come, and then when Messiah comes and opens up the door for the Gentiles, you have chosen to shut them out thinking that you are better than they are simply because of your ethnicity and all the tradition that goes along with that. So chapters 9, 10, and 11 are really, Paul is very aggressive here. And I wonder as Phoebe reads this section of Romans to the house churches, I wonder what the reaction was. I wonder if some of them sat flabbergasted that Paul would have such audacity to do this to them. They might even feel betrayed that he, who is a Jew himself, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as he says in the book of Philippians, he is, it seems as though he is turning his back on them. But that's where chapters one through eight come in. He's going to really lay out the Gentiles as well, especially in chapter one of Romans. So taken as a whole, I hope you can see this section here where it talks about God's election of Israel as a nation, not the election of individuals within that nation. You find that he is bringing them down to a level where he can then bring this reconciliation between these two ethnic groups. Does that make sense to everybody? Any questions, comments? So another observation. Okay, as if this wasn't confusing enough. How does Paul choose to communicate? Well, instead of just stating it outrightly, you know what he does? Through all of chapter nine, and some in chapter 10, he just keeps 
pummeling them with questions over and over and over. He just keeps using one question after another. So look at verse 19, just to kind of get a feel for it. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to risk God's, uh, resist God's will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Do you see? Question, 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 question. Now, that's a rhetorical device, no, no doubt. But he is directing these questions almost as if, okay, Paul, I give up. I give up. I mean, verse 22, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? Question. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Question. So all of these questions are rhetorical devices, but it's also a teaching uh, tool. Um, if you ever notice the ministry of Jesus, yes, he teaches in places like the Sermon on the Mount, but he asks a lot of questions as well. And that's Jewish in nature. Uh, the whole learning approach is not just giving answers, but asking questions. So when you come to a conclusion, you pummel that with more questions. And when you come to a conclusion of that, you give more questions. And that's just kind of a Jewish technique of learning. Uh, and by asking question after question after question, it's forcing people to think, to use their imagination, um, to research, different things like that. Does that make sense to everybody? So Old Testament citations, events, names, questions, all of these things are being used by Paul as teaching tools, as rhetorical devices to do what? Well, He's pressing home, as I say here on the slide, their privilege as Jews, how God revealed himself in the Torah, but God has revealed himself greater in the person of Christ, and there's not the necessity for Gentile converts to convert to Torah observance, and that's where they missed it. They have a knowledge, they have a zeal, but it, it's, it's limited in scope. It's, it's somehow, um, you know, it's somehow controlled by their, their cultural upbringing and they fail to see that God is doing something new. Any questions there? Do you think this is a lot like when uh, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, like your whitewashed tombs and you're just, yeah. You know, that's not going to save you, your yeah. right of righteousness. But, or is it more like um, you're thinking that you're saved just because you're a Jew, but it really is by your faith? Mm -hmm. I think that's the, that's the bottom line. Yeah. I think that bottom line, he's going to show that both groups of people come to God on the same basis, faith. That's the, 
I think that's what he, the point he's trying to get to. Correct. But you're right. Jesus, Jesus does kind of use the same technique, especially in Matthew 23, uh, only instead of questions, he uses woes, W-O-E. Yeah. Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, teachers of the law, that type of thing. Other questions, comments? Is there anything I can, can do to clarify? This, as I said at the top, this section in the New Testament is one of the hardest ones to understand and to properly interpret. And so if you'll notice, a lot of times preachers never touch 9 through 11 of Romans. That I can count on one hand how many times over 35 years I've heard a pastor even touch Romans 9 through 11 because it's so confusing. And it's so, uh, I don't know, it's, it's so difficult to get to what Paul is trying to, to, to accomplish in this section. Okay, so here's the big point. If I was to suggest what the big point is in this section, it would be twofold. Number one, Paul is trying to show to the Jewish people that even by allowing the Gentiles to come into uh, the family of God, for a lack of a better term, to come into the covenant, it's not like God has disregarded the, the promises he has made to the Jews through the Abrahamic covenant. The big point is that he has been faithful, uh, you know, to the Abrahamic covenant all the way back in the book of Genesis. Secondly, God's plans, though, the way he stays faithful to his promises are not always straightforward, nor are they chronological. So when you think about the history of the nation of Israel, there is a lot of winding through the Old Testament. Um, and you look and you go, why has God not written this person off? You, you think of some of the individuals who showed faith and then, you know, they have a lack of faith. Abraham himself being uh, the first violator of that when he sets out for a new land, and then he tries to pawn his wife off as, uh, as not his wife, uh, just to save his own skin. Um, you, you find eyes, uh, uh, Abraham about ready to uh, sacrifice Isaac. We've talked about that in our Genesis study where was that God's idea or was that Abraham's idea because of his cultural uh, situation? That's what you do with your firstborn. Um, that's, that pales in comparison to David, though. Why would God make promises to David? And then David, who commits adultery and has the husband of Bathsheba murdered, um, why would God stay faithful to that covenant? because that's, 
the type of God he is. He is the God of the Hesed, that is the God of loyal love. And he stays committed even when people are not. And so it seems as though that's what he's trying to get across in this section, that God can and is faithful even when specific individuals are not faithful uh, through that storyline. Um, you'll see here in the, the unbelief of Israel is nothing new in the history of God's dealings. But what you'll find is God will hop around on how he wants to fulfill that storyline. So when you read chapters 9 through 11, one of the things that you're going to note that's recorded right here in chapter 9 is God will not always honor the cultural custom of the oldest brother being the recipient of the promises. So look at verse uh, 12. Uh, it says in chapter 9, verse 12, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. And just as it is written, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. Now that's been a phrase that has been misapplied. He's talking here about the mysterious way of God choosing to fulfill this covenant, not through the ordinary protocol, through the oldest uh, brother being uh, the recipient of the promises, but he chooses Jacob over Esau. When it says here, Esau, I hated, he's quoting. So you look here, that comes out of, out of Malachi chapter one, verses two and three, He's simply taking Old Testament ammunition and putting it here. But his point is not to say God hated Esau, not at all. His point is God chose to work the covenant through Jacob. And that was God's choice. That was his sovereign choice. He can do that if he wants. So God skips around and he hops to the right and he hops to the left in how he chooses to carry out these promises. So in, as I put here, the faithfulness means God shifts one person to another according to his own plan, and yet God remains faithful to this promise that he's made to Abraham all the way through to the, the present here. Um, so Paul announces that the present choice of Gentiles as God's agents of redemption in the world is both a sign of God's grace and faithfulness to the covenant with Abraham. He's opened the door to allow them to come in too. You see how confusing this section is? It, you, you, have to, you have to be Jewish almost, be able to, to pick through all of the isolated texts that are pulled out of the Old Testament and made as part of his argument here. But I think that's the big point. God's faithful to the covenant, and he can choose to fulfill that covenant any way that he wants to. But that's a far cry than saying God chooses to save some people and condemn other people simply because he has the right to do it. At that point, I think the question needs to be raised, if that is true, is God just? So, you know, that, you know, at that point, can you really make the claim that God is love? 
that before you were born, I choose you to go to heaven and I choose to condemn you. In Calvinism, that's not an issue because the primary attribute in Calvinism is not the love of God, it's the sovereignty of God. And if you, if you emphasize the sovereignty of God to the nth degree, then the love of God is in question. So, okay, maybe I can clarify if you have some questions there. You know what, I, I was, when I was reading this, I was really kind of appreciating that he's showing all the people that really weren't following the law and they were, for the most part, disobedient, but that he uh, has David as like a man after his own heart, that he loves him and he's, and because he has love for God, that supersedes everything. Like, even though he made mistakes and everything, that he's maybe showing like, all of these people that they, they that wasn't really the point the point wasn't really to go to the letter of the law but it is and always has been loving me you know mm -hmm. being mm -hmm. the man of faith yeah and so, of course it, this is not uh this point is not in romans but it's in galatians paul calls the law the schoolmaster to bring us to christ in other words an educational um uh, tool to get people to to come to the point of trusting Christ rather than the law. So, good questions, good comments. All right. So here's what my my take is on this. I think chapter nine, verse one through chapter eleven, verse ten, is prim primarily being addressed to the weak. Well, remember the weak is. Um, the Jews that um, had come back to Rome after they'd been exiled, as they come back into these house churches, um, it seems as though they have a little bit of attitude that is looking down on Gentiles. And one of the things that Paul's trying to do is just soak this section with scripture to get, to the, get them to the point that... Mm -hmm. Not, they haven't been faithful. If you look back in Jewish history, there's a lot of unfaithfulness, by, you know, the following after other gods and all that type of thing. And I think that's um, what he tries to get at in verse 30 of chapter 9. He says, what then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it, not by faith, but as it, as if it were by works. In other words, they tried to keep the external components of their religion, but the things that really matter, justice, fairness, treating each other um, fairly is, is, you know, is found in the Old Testament as part of, uh, of their constant failure of living up to what God wanted to do in the community. And then he quotes in verse 33 of uh, chapter nine, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. 
and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. And so that's a quote uh, out of Isaiah, uh, and it's a combination quote out of chapter 8 and chapter 28. So he combines two uh, verses in that quotation there. Um, what is he saying? When Jesus comes along, he becomes a stumbling stone to the Jewish because he's, yes, he's Jewish. And yes, he's a law keeper. And yes, he's Torah observant. And yes, he keeps all of the major feasts. And yes, he, he, he does all of these things. However, he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you in the Sermon on the Mount. And then he says, you know, you have heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, if you look upon another person and cry Raka, you're, you know, those type of things. Um, he says, no, there, there's a greater law than the written law. And that's the law of the heart. It's the law of the spirit, that type of thing. Does that make sense to everybody? So that brings us back to the very beginning of chapter nine. In verses one through five, he talks about the redemptive historical privilege of their election. So it says here, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Then he talks about all of those privileges. And he, he talks about how God is to be praised, that he chose these people and gave them all of these opportunities. But it seems as though they have missed many of those opportunities. But it's not like God is going to turn his back on them. So do you see here this line? They are Israelites, which is their name means they're the recipients of covenant mercy. In other words, um, God's not going to turn his back on the Jewish people, even though at times they turn their back on him. So maybe the point here is that the Torah is kind of like a double-edged sword. It reveals God's will, but it also accuses those who fall short of it, whether they're Jew or they're Gentile. So basically what Paul is trying to say here is you've been privileged by your election um, to be chosen as a group of people to be the ancestors of the Messiah. Now you have the opportunity to be a part of this messianic movement that includes Gentiles as well. Don't miss this opportunity. And it's all a part of bringing those two groups together. Questions? So I've already mentioned this, don't need to go over it again necessarily, but so through the remainder of chapter nine into chapter 10, uh, he just talks about here how many times God surprises us in the way he does things and the people that he chooses to carry on this. But there is something that they all have in common, and it finds its fulfillment. It, it, in Greek, it, the word that is used is telos, which is the end goal. It finds its end goal in the person of Christ. So let's take a look at chapter 10 just for a second. Come down to verse 5. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is 
by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to say to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it's in your mouth, it's in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Now, at this point, it becomes more personal, and I understand why the gist of interpretation is, oh, it's all about individual election, but notice verse 11. This seems to be the main emphasis. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So while collectively Jews, Gentiles, they come together in the person of Christ, yet how we appropriate that is, is on an individual uh, basis. Do I want to be a part of what God is doing in the world? My faith is to say, yes, Jesus is Lord. My faith is, yes, I want to be a part of what he's doing in this world, and I'm going to, to trust him uh, for that. So uh, Paul is stating that Israel does still remain a privileged people. They're the ones that brought it all into uh, the experience that the Gentiles are now appropriating. But the solution is not the Torah itself, and it's not to force Gentiles to observe the Torah. The solution is righteousness, proper standing before God, the potential for transformation by the Holy Spirit that is given. That's all by faith. That's all by faith. Does that make sense? So we all take these opportunities when God brings them into our life to trust him, to know that he's faithful, to, to understand that um, even though we can't understand the movements of God, we can't understand the heart of God. Thoughts there? So the main point is by faith. That's the real emphasis here. And one of the reasons that some of the people within this chosen group of, uh, of indivi- uh, this chosen nation of Israel did not have a right standing with God is because they trusted in their religion more than they trusted in God. And they, and that brought them to a point where we see in the gospels, many oppose Jesus as the Messiah. And eventually they coerce a legal system to put him to death. So here I kind of close with this. They have not seen that Jesus, the Messiah, was the end of the law. So that right standing with God could be for everyone, not just Israel. And not with an inkling of privilege in the faith community for the weak. So the Gentiles believe in the Messiah. They're full citizens in the kingdom of heaven. And uh, 
it's not on their merit. It's on the basis of faith. And it goes back to the faithfulness of God. Thoughts there? Okay, let me close this real quick. All right, so confusing section. Um, do you have, so can I help clarify this in any way? And do not get frustrated. This section has frustrated scholars for centuries. This is not an easy section. And someday we're all going to go to heaven and say, Paul, really? <laughs> what were you thinking? What were you thinking? Oh, my mm -hmm. gosh. But do you get, I hope you get the gist, is that a group in Rome felt that their ethnicity alone allowed them to be privileged over Gentiles. And so Paul is showing that both Jews and Gentiles stand on equal footing before God through faith. That's the simplest way I can say it. Without, without the dozens of Old Testament quotations that Paul uses in this section. I keep, going, I keep going back to the parable that Christ told about the um, man who hired people at the beginning of the day and then later on and later on and finally at the last hour. Yeah. And it's been screaming to me the whole time we've been going over this. It, it mm -hmm. just seems to tie in there. I yeah. Think. Yeah, I think that's a perfect illustration. So one of the parables Jesus uses, so what Shelley is referring to is one of the parables is that there's a, a, a business owner that needs help. He goes to the common um, place in the marketplace and hires some people at the beginning of the day to do some work. He realizes he's not going to get the job done. He goes back midday, gets some more workers, goes back later in the afternoon, gets some more workers. And then at the end of the day, he gives them all the same amount. Well, that rubs against the grain of capitalistic outlook. And that is, no, I deserve more than the guy who comes later. The point is, and the point that's made in that parable is that, hey, if the owner, the business owner wants to be generous to all, you've agreed to this, that you'd work all these hours for this amount of money. And he's been faithful to that. But if he wants to open it up to others, that's his privilege to do so. And it does have an application in this, is that if God wants to open up uh, the covenant to Gentiles, it's, it's his right to do so. So it's a great illustration. Other questions or comments? So now that we've gone through chapters 9 through 11, I'm, I'll touch on chapter 11 a little bit next week, but it's going to make chapters 1 through 8 simple in comparison. <laughs> it really is, because this is the toughest section. But if you keep all of what we said from chapters 12 through 14 in the back of your mind, 
you're going, oh, I see. Even though he doesn't unveil his reason for writing until the end of the book, he set all his readers up. And the what and he's gone through this chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Of course, there weren't verses when he wrote the, the letter, but my point is every section of it um, to get to that point. And um, the midsection, boy, I wouldn't have wanted to be Phoebe when she read these um, these chapters in the house churches because it would have offended the Jews and it would have confused the Gentiles. No doubt. So Phoebe was a Jew, do you think? That's a good that's a good question. Um, I don't think so. Uh, I think she's Gentile. I think Paul intentionally chooses two things a non-Jew, and a woman in the first century to be his mouthpiece and to be the personification of his message. That goes, I mean, the minute she stops in town and says, I've got a letter from Paul for you, they would go, well, why aren't you a man? And why aren't you a Jew? So he's already, he's already upsetting the apple cart by who, whom he chooses to send the letter with. Interesting. All right. Well, stay dry, stay safe, and uh, hopefully uh, by the weekend we'll be able to maneuver around the city um, so. as freely <laughs> as we want. Hopefully, no yeah. power outages. Yeah, and, I hope so. Yeah, no. and for the Bayslax and for health. <laughs> yeah, enjoy. <laughs> Yeah, we are so envious. Um, man, Florida and Arizona just about great right now. But uh, send pictures down to you. Yeah, right. Send pictures. Oh, send pictures. Okay, we will. Mm -hmm. All right. Did you get any pictures of the previous snowfall at all? Yeah, I saw some. Yeah, did you see some of them? Man, it was deep, that's for sure. Okay. Yep. She wants to say goodbye too. Bye. 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 Take care. Have a good evening, folks. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.